0: Hi, everybody, and welcome again to Wednesday night, uh, online only, here we are. And once again, I want you to know I'm really missing our church family because I'm on stage where I normally am on a Wednesday night, and, um, but I'm looking out at nothing but empty chairs. Uh, however, I do see you in my mind's eye, and I know you're gathering in your living room or your office or wherever you happen to be. And, you know, if there was ever a time that we needed to be into the Word of God, it's now just getting into the Bible uh, and opening it up and going through some great verses that have to do with our salvation and our faith and, and the warfare that we 're in and all of that good stuff. So I welcome you, and as I say every time, I want to say it again tonight how how much we appreciate your faithful giving to the house of God, because you know um, it's touched me because I know a lot of you are struggling. Uh, some of you have lost your job. Some of you are afraid you're going to lose your job. Perhaps you've had a pay cut. Um, but it's these are trying times. And so when I see the um, the finances coming in, the the tithes, the offerings, and it, it touches me deeply, and I really mean that. And I want to just thank you for your faithfulness because one thing it's done, is enabled us uh, to keep giving to missions. You know, We have a great missions work in Haiti, in India, in Africa. And in those three works alone, thousands of children are fed every day. Many of them are housed and educated, uh, receive medical care. And uh, so your faithful giving has allowed us to not miss a beat in our giving to missions, which we decided at the very beginning of this we were going to do everything we could to never have to pull back a dime. And heretofore, the Lord has helped us, and we haven't had to do it at all. So again, thank you, and I think I, think I speak on behalf of the children in India and Africa and Haiti, uh, saying thank you on their behalf, because they have been able to eat and have a place to sleep. So God bless. Well, tonight we're continuing our series in Hebrews, and uh, this is really, really good. We're getting to... Uh, Some of the portions of Hebrews that you're probably a little more familiar with. Um, This is our 12th Wednesday night in this great book. And I'm just calling uh, this this message, Encourage One Another, because that's what he's going to be talking to us about uh, uh, as we go through these verses. You remember last time we were in chapter 10, and we're in chapter 10 again tonight, because I told you it had 39 verses. And there's no way I can do... 39 verses, justice in one sitting. So we're going to finish the second half of chapter 10. You'll remember that the first half of Hebrews 10, we finish with the exhortation to hold on to our conviction about Christ, hold on to our faith in Christ, and hold on to our confession of Christ firmly to the end. The writer is telling us, and I suspect the writer is Paul, is telling us, Hang on. Hold tightly to your faith. Don't let it go. Don't give up. Don't walk away in tough times, but hang on, because not only are you hanging on, but better yet, God is hanging on to you. And so in the second half of chapter 10, the writer is shifting gears a bit, and he's, he's turning our attention to one another, to the body of Christ, to our church family. And he's going to talk to us about our responsibility over one another. You know, there's that old question, am I my brother's keeper? And in some ways, yes, you are, and I am. We are our brother's and sister's keeper. We are to watch out for one another. So let's look at what he says, starting in verse 24. We're picking up chapter 10. And he says, and let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. Now, notice he uses the word consider. Let's consider one another. The word consider is from a Greek word that means to think about or to seriously ponder something. So he's telling us, I want you to think about, really think about your brothers and sisters. Uh, It's from the very same Greek word that Jesus uses, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount when he said consider the lilies uh, of the field, how they grow. They don't toil, they don't spin. In other words, they don't weave for themselves clothing. And yet, look how your father so beautifully clothes them. I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these lilies. Now, the idea is Jesus said, look at the lilies and think about them. Think about what they teach us, uh, how God takes care of them. Same word, consider one another. Look at the the people in your church family. Are they struggling? Are are they under temptation? Uh, Do they need prayer? Uh, Do they need some kind of material help? He's saying consider them. Think about them. Don't just just, uh, assume that everything is all right with them, but consider them. Um, And on having concluded how they're doing, we should seek, he says, to stir them up. Provoke them, prod them to two things, to walk in love and to walk in good works. He said, having considered them, I want you to prod them, provoke them, stir them up to walk in love and to get involved in good works. Get off the bench and get onto the field and carry the ball and get in, get in the game. We, we're, to, we're to prod our brethren to walk in these two crucial things. Notice, love on one hand, good works in the other. And now we know about love. We know we should walk in love. But, you know, the Bible says, that all that you do be done in love. So it's it makes sense that he would put the two together, love on one hand, good works on the other. And he says, get out there and do some good works and be sure you do them in love. Now, let me just talk about good works for a minute. Because so often we hear people who are really, really heavy on grace, and you're not going to, meet a pastor that's heavier on grace than me. But they say, well we're 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 saved by grace, by faith and by grace, by grace through faith, but but not by good works. And and we have a tendency to sort of marginalize good works. But the Bible doesn't marginalize them at all. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that by good works our faith is literally perfected or completed. And By good works, we glorify the Father who is in heaven. James wrote of Father Abraham. He said, do you see that faith was working together with his works? Watch this now. Faith was working together side by side with Abraham's works. And by works, his faith was made perfect. And that word perfect means completed, well-rounded, His faith was well-rounded or or finally came to maturity when he mixed faith with good works. Now, the Bible goes on to say, well, first of all, what is a good work? I just feel a little nudged here to clarify what a good work is because you might be sitting there going, what is a good work, Jeff? I'd love to get involved in some, but what are they? Well, a a Bible or, or a good work is something a Christian does. For the glory of God, out of love for God, in obedience to God, to produce the fruit of the kingdom of God. I'm going to say that one more time. A good work is something that a Christian does for the glory of God, not for self-glory, but for the glory of God, out of love for God, in obedience to God, to produce the fruit of the kingdom of God. That's a good work. And the Bible says we're to be rich in good works as believers. We don't do good works to become a Christian. We do good works because we are a Christian. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that our good works literally glorify God. Listen to what Jesus said. Let your light shine in such a way before men that they may see your, here it is, good works. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus said we ought to get out there and be doing things uh, for the glory of God, out of love for God in obedience to God, producing the fruit of the kingdom of God. And when lost people see it, they will look up and say, wow, uh, I'm giving glory to God. I recognize that the works they're involved in and what those works are producing is evidence of the reality of God. So we're to be rich in good works. Ephesians 2.10, Paul states, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice, way beforehand, literally he sa- says elsewhere, before the foundations of the world were even laid, God ordained that you and I would be involved in good works that he beforehand prepared for us to walk in. Titus 2.7 reads, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good work. So to every Christian, show yourself to be a model of good work. Somebody who is plugged in, somebody who is out there using their gifts, somebody who is touching others for Jesus Christ and bringing glory to God. Again, Paul writes in uh, seven verses later in Titus 2.14 He declares that Jesus redeemed us to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So not only are we to do good works and be rich in good works, but we're to be cranked about good works. We're to be excited about good works, full of zeal to get in there and do good works, do the work of the Lord. Uh, I'm reminded of that psalm where David writes, the zeal for your house has eaten me up, and it was applied to Jesus later. And so as God's children, we're to have a zeal to get out there and do the works of God, excited about it, um, have passion for it. And then in Titus 3, verse 8, Paul concludes his charge to Titus uh, by saying, I want you to insist on these things. Now notice, he says, Titus, who was a pastor, I want you to get in there with your people, and I want you to insist, demand, command them literally, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So notice this. We're to do good works. We're to have a zeal for good works. We're to be devoted to good works. We're to be rich in good works. I think it goes without saying, believers are to be involved in good works, We're to spur each other on, the writer of Hebrews says. Once you've studied your brethren and and considered their situation, then get in there and prod them to walk in love and, and to get involved in doing good works. Now, next, the apostle urges faithfulness to church. So here we go. In verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some or the habit of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, the day being the return of Christ. So notice now, one verse later, after telling us to provoke and prod each other to get involved in the work of the Lord, then he says, be sure you attend church faithfully. Don't get out of the habit not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Now, words matter in the Bible because what we read in our English Bibles uh, are translations from the original languages of Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Latin. But the majority of the New Testament was written in Greek. So the word forsaken, when he says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together... The word forsaken means to leave something behind or literally to abandon something. Jesus uses the exact same word when he's hanging on the cross and he looks up in that heart-wrenching moment and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Same Greek word, abandoned. Why why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me behind? Of course, we know that that very serious and mysterious moment, Jesus Christ was taking upon himself the weight of the sins of the entire world, and the prophecy of Isaiah was being fulfilled. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ on the cross did not literally become a sinner, but he became a sacrifice for sin. And the Bible says he took upon himself the iniquity of us all. That's when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But my point is, it's the same Greek word that the writer of Hebrews uses when he says, don't forsake, don't leave behind, don't abandon the gathering together of the saints. And, and I can almost hear the Lord asking many people in our day the same question regarding church attendance, gathering together with the saints. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned the gathering together of the saints? Now you know I have pastored quite a long time now, uh, 36 years actually, and so I've seen many, many times in my pastoral career people get out of church for one reason or another. They get offended over something, or they get so busy with life that they eventually get out of the habit. And that's why Hebrews uh, 10, the writer says, as the habit of some is, they they get out of attendance uh, to the church gatherings. And I've seen them get out there, and I would, you know, every once in a while run into them, and I've had them say to me literally, well, you know, I get with God every day. Uh, and on Sundays, I I watch somebody on Christian TV, and I get in the Bible myself, and, I, and I'm doing just great. But see, when they say that, they're really saying God's word is wrong. And you've got to be very careful when you say God's word is wrong. Because the biblical text here says, don't forsake the assembling or the gathering of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Don't leave it behind. Don't abandon it. Because isn't it interesting that Jesus said, where two or three or more are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So in a way, when we abandon the gathering together of the saints, we're abandoning something that the Lord himself is in. And so in a way, it's kind of abandoning him when we abandon his people and we abandon gathering together. In one respect, it's like abandoning him because he has already told us, when you gather together, I'm there. And there you know, time and space won't allow me to get into an exhaustive treatment of this. Uh, All the reasons we should remain faithful to the gathering together of the saints. But again, I want you to, to note that Uh, Right after he says, I want you to provoke one another to love and good works. In the very next verse, he says, don't abandon the very place where those two things happen most. And that's the gathering of the saints. So, uh, I know many of you are so looking forward to being able to gather together again. And I think a lot of people during this uh, time where we literally have not been able to, it's, it's occurred to you what it really meant to you. Uh, You can't beat getting together with God's people in the house of God, worshiping him, the spirit of God falling, the Lord speaking, saying hello to one another, encouraging one another, prodding one another to love and good works, praying for one another. There's just something about that gathering that God owns. And so I'm so looking forward to being able to do it again. Now, next the writer we will deal with one of the front burner topics of the latter part of Hebrews, and that is the subject of faith. I mean, we're about to head into the the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And so in the latter part of chapter 10, he's going to start heading there talking about faith. But before he does, he's going to talk in some very somber words about the danger of rejecting our Lord Jesus Christ. By faith. He's going to talk about the danger of not coming to Him by faith for our salvation. So these are somber words, but I'm going to read it because it's the Word of God. This is the biblical text. So he says in verse 26: For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Wow. He goes on. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Now, folks, this is judgment talk. And a lot of people in our day, political correct atmosphere that we're in in America, we we don't talk a lot about judgment in the house of God where we really should. Because, you know, the Bible talks more about God's judgment than God's love. It really does. Because we need to hear it. Because... Our eternal destiny uh, hinges on what we do with Jesus, and that's what the writer is about to go into. Now, with verses like what I just read, it's very important to remember three key tools of Bible interpretation. So listen carefully. Here comes the three key tools of Bible interpretation. Context, context, and context. Now, that's easy to remember, isn't it? What do I mean by context? I mean, what came before the passage, what comes after the passage, and what was the historical context of the passage? I mean, if if you had a, a, let's just say a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or let's say your spouse was in another country and you were sharing letters back and forth, what would your boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse think? If they sent you a five-page Love letter, and all you did was read the middle line. What would they think about that? Well, they would think, well, if all they care to read is the middle line, then they're not real curious about what I had to say before it or what I had to say after it, and they can't really understand the full letter without reading what was before and what was after. It's the same thing with the Word of God. We need to learn the three key rules of Bible interpretation context context, context, what comes before the passage, what comes after it, and what was the historical context in which it was spoken. Now, the context here is the writer is once again addressing the Jews of his day who are considering whether or not to leave Judaism and come to Christ. They're torn betwixt the two. As I've shared so many times in this series, Hebrews is written to Jewish people. Some have fully come to Christ. Some are on the edge. Some are a little further back there. And a, a good number of them were wondering, do I actually leave Moses and Judaism and the temple and the sacrifices and everything I've been raised in and my granddaddy was raised in and all my descendants were raised in to embrace Jesus Christ who has abolished the entire Old Testament sacrificial system? Do I fully come to Jesus or not? He's writing to them. So he's warning them. And let me read out of the Living Bible. It just helps make sense of the verses we just read. So here it is again. Here is uh, Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27. One more time. If anyone sins deliberately by rejecting the Savior after knowing the truth, of his forgiveness. In other words, you've heard the gospel. This sin is not covered by Christ's death. There is no way to get rid of your sin if you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He goes on, there will be nothing to look forward to but the terrible punishment of God's awful anger which will literally consume all of his enemies. So this is a heavy word. He's saying to the Jews of that time, look, you're really wondering about coming to Jesus. Let me just tell you, if you reject him, then there's not going to be any more covering of your sin. Your sin is not going to be covered. Your guilt's not going to be washed away. And when you meet God, you're going to meet him and have to answer for your sins. This is a heavy word. And you know what? It's not just true of the Jews of the writer's day, but it's true of every human being on the planet. Whoever hears the good news of forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and does not take advantage of it will die in their sin to perish forever. That's the fact. That's the biblical text. That's what the Bible says. And so it's not, well, any old way I want to get to God, I'll just go to God that way. It doesn't really matter as long as I'm sincere. No, that's not true. I have to be honest with you. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, if we reject the message of the gospel and the shed blood of God's only begotten son, there's no more remission of sins. It can't be done. You can't earn your way in by being a good person because God says, though you may be a good dad, a good mom, the Bible teaches we've all broken God's law. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. Not one of us can stand before God and say, I perfectly obeyed all your commandments. Not one of us. And if we don't avail ourselves of the blood of Christ, then <clears throat> here's what Jesus said himself. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 36, and all who trust him, God's son, he's speaking of himself, to save them, have eternal life. All who trust Jesus to save them will have eternal life. Those who don't believe and obey him shall never see heaven. Jesus said that. I didn't say that. Nobody, no man made that up. Jesus said that. If we don't trust him to save us, we will never see heaven. But the wrath of God remains upon them. These are the words of Jesus. Somber words. Paul the Apostle also warned, listen to how heavy Paul gets with this. When the Lord Jesus appears suddenly from heaven, in flaming fire with his mighty angels, he will bring judgment on those who do not wish to know God and who refuse to accept his plan to save them through our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished in everlasting hell. I'm going to read that again because... Is this hellfire and brimstone? Actually, yes. Paul the Apostle writes somberly to the whole world, they will be punished in everlasting hell, forever separated from the Lord, never to see the glory of his power. See, I think that's what hell is. Flames, I don't know. That's the way it's described. But to me, what makes hell hell is to be Forever separated from the presence of the Lord. And that's what Paul wrote there. And that is Paul being moved by the Holy Spirit. So though it's Paul writing it, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through him. It is the Lord Jesus guiding his his heart and his words. Paul is affirming what Christ said. So the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 is saying, look, he's telling the Jews of his day, and by default, the entire world forevermore until Christ comes, if you don't take advantage of Christ's shed blood, you will perish forever, be separated from the Lord forever, and there will be no recourse. That's very hard for me to wrap my mind around, but the Bible says it. And if the Bible says it, I accept it because the same Bible that tells me God loves me warns me that God will judge me if I reject his Son. So the writer of Hebrews again says, if anyone sins deliberately by rejecting the Savior after knowing the truth of of forgiveness, the gospel, this sin is not covered by Christ's death. You know what this does? This blows universalism completely out of the water. Universalism teaches that when Jesus died on the cross, his blood covered everybody, and nobody needs to repent. Everybody's going to go to heaven and as crazy as that sounds, there are thousands of people, tens of thousands all over the world that have accepted that false doctrine. And I happen to know of a couple of good preachers um, who used to be sound who have bought into that and have fallen away from the Lord and gone into this false doctrine that God, Christ's blood covers everybody and, and there's no need to fear hell on anybody's part. Because Jesus, when he died on the cross, his shed blood covered the sins of every human being forevermore. That's a false doctrine. And these verses prove it because he says, and Jesus said, you must place faith in him individually. And if you don't, then you will face God's wrath and God's judgment. Now, after these heavy words, he takes his Jewish readers back to Moses' day. He reminds them, of Moses' time, verse 28, chapter 10 of Hebrews. He said, a man who refused to obey the laws given by Moses was killed without mercy. If there were two or three witnesses to his sin, and that's the way it was in Moses' time. If two or three people came forward saying, for instance, that uh, a a man had committed adultery with a woman and it was proven to be true, they were stoned to death. And And I know that's heavy. But the writer is making a point. Sin got you killed in Moses' day. But now the apostle, writing Hebrews, draws a parallel to Christ in verse 29. Think how much more terrible the punishment will be for those who have trampled underfoot the Son of God treated his cleansing blood as though it were common and unhallowed or unholy and insulted and outraged the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to his people. In other words, if, if people lost their lives in Moses' time for refusing to obey God's law, how much more serious it will be for those that reject the mercy and grace offered them through Christ's shed blood. Wow. See, when we go before God, listen to me closely. Let me talk. Let me just talk shop with you for a minute. When we go before God, when the whole world goes before God, on the judgment day, the Bible so clearly warns of and speaks of. When you face God and I face God, when the lost world faces God, how much money you made won't matter. Your college degrees will amount to nothing. If you never got a traffic ticket, that won't matter. If you never had a deal with the police, none of that matters at all. Whether or not you were born into a good family, it matters nothing. None of your accomplishments or mine. Nothing we did on this earth. If we gave a million dollars to charity, if we, if we uh, went into the streets and, and helped the homeless, if we built orphanages all over the world to take in uh, 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 hungry children, None of those things are going to, God's going to ask one question at the judgment. Did you accept my son, Jesus Christ? Did you place your faith in him when you heard the gospel? And if we answer no, that's all that's going to matter because that's what Hebrews was just talking about. We we have essentially, when we heard the gospel said, no, thank you, God, because God says, repent. God says, turn to my son. God says, be saved through his blood. And if we reject that, that's the only thing that matters at the judgment bar of God. If we have accepted his son, then his blood covers us and Jesus is our attorney and we are allowed into heaven's gates, not by our own works, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And that's how we get in. So we're reminded again of, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, earlier on in our study, when the writer asked, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The answer is, we won't escape. We won't escape. Now, in verses 30 and 31, the writer looks at what it will be like to face God without Christ. And so, a few more somber words before we get to the subject of faith. Verse 30, for we know him, that is God, who said, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay them. Who also said the Lord himself will handle these cases. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you know, I do believe the writer was Paul. And if anybody knew what it was, what it was to fall into the hands of the living God, it was Paul when he was knocked down to the ground on the road to Damascus And heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he had a confrontation with the living God that was very frightening to him. So he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, I can't imagine a more fearful thing than to face God face-to-face and have to answer for all of my sins. To come before him without Jesus' blood, having washed away my guilt no one to stand with me, no place uh, to turn, unable to hide. I can't imagine. He's already told us six chapters back in Hebrews 4.13, he, God, knows about everyone, everywhere. Everything about us is bare and wide open to the all-seeing eyes of our living God. Nothing can be hidden from him to whom we must explain all that we have done. So, Next, the apostle reminds the Jews that it had indeed come to Christ. Now he's talking to the ones who have genuinely been saved of all the troubles they've already endured. So he's shifting gears now, having warned those who were close to receiving Christ, who are still on the outside looking in, or still walking around the edges, tipping their toes in the water, but not, not fully coming to Christ altogether. He's done talking to them about the coming future judgment. And now he's addressing the Jewish people who had genuinely been saved. He reminds them of all the troubles they've already endured, starting from the moment they were first saved. Listen carefully to his description of their trials. And, you know, we're all going through some real trials right now. But maybe as I read uh, uh, what these early Jewish converts went through, it'll help us to feel a little bit better about where we are. He says in verse 32 through 36... But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you were saved, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. Verse 34, for you had compassion on me in my chains. That again, that is so Pauline. That is, of Paul, talking about chains. That's another verse that makes me pretty sure Paul wrote Hebrews. But I digress. Let's move on. He goes on. And joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Listen to what they went through. As soon as these Jewish converts accepted Christ, great struggle, sufferings, They were made a spectacle of. That means they were mocked and ridiculed and made fun of publicly, both by reproaches and tribulations. They were lumped in with Paul and the others who were so persecuted. They had their goods plundered. That means, I guess, the authorities came into their houses and arrested them and and, and took all of their worldly belongings. They lost home and possessions, things that they had purchased and that were theirs, but they were plundered because of their confession of Christ. So the apostle is reasoning with them because they are in the heat of persecution. He says, essentially, you've been through so much already. You've already paid such a high price for your faith. Don't give up now. That's what he's saying. Verse 35, therefore, Since you've already suffered all these things, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't let your profession of faith go. Don't go back. Don't give up on Jesus and go back to Judaism and Moses and the sacrifices and all those things that are only shadows of the real thing that was to come Jesus Christ. Don't go back. You've come this far, but the writer seems to intimate here that they're getting a little bit shaky. They're getting a little bit shaky in their confession and in their walk with the Lord. So he says, you need to put on endurance. This is what you really need right now. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Now, the word endurance comes from a compound Greek word. That means it's it's one word made up of two different words, all right? The word is hupomene. Now, I'm giving you the Greek word because I'm going to explain a couple of things. The word endurance in the Greek is hupomene. So the first part of the word, what we would call the prefix, is hypo, And it's where we get the word hypo, and it means under. Remember that. For instance, the type of needle we get a vaccination with. is called a hypodermic needle, and, in, and the prefix of hypodermic is the same word, hypo, and it's called a hypodermic needle because it goes under your skin. So important. The word endurance, the beginning, the first part of the word, hupo or under. So keep that in mind. Now, the second half of the word is meno, and it means to remain or stay. So if you take hupo, meno, and put them together, it's talking about remaining under a load with a spirit of joy. It's talking about how God empowers the believer to remain or endure under a load that God has allowed into your life. Like right now, we're under the load of this uh, virus, coronavirus, uh, we can't meet. Uh, you know, we're when we go to the store, we're wearing gloves. There's restriction on, restrictions on us right now. And so we're under that load. So he says, you have need of endurance when you're under something like this. Uh, of remaining, meno, under, hoopo, remaining under the load with a good attitude of joy and faith. He said to the Hebrews, in the midst of all this persecution... You need endurance to make it to the end. You need God's help to remain under the load until you get to the other side. The God-given ability to keep on going, this is what we all need right now, while under this load without fainting and without quitting, without putting up the white flag. Now, not just the virus that we're dealing with, but let's say you're in a marriage right now that is, uh, under some pressure you're go, you're you're under some trouble you're having trouble getting along or you're you're in a a difficult moment in your union with your spouse and what does god say does he say run no he says you have need of endurance you have need of remaining under the load of this with joy and an attitude of faith until i carry you to the other side you have need of endurance so as the chapter closes the writer gives them a major incentive to stay with it. Here's the incentive, verse 37. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, and he will not tarry. Now, he's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 here, all right? He who is coming, that's Habakkuk. He who is coming will come and will not tarry. So, uh, hupomeno, stay under it. Uh, Stay strong. Cling to Christ. Let Him strengthen you. Don't give up. He's going to carry you. He's going to keep you from fainting or quitting. The Lord is going to return. He's telling them, one day you will see His face. It reminds me of the words of Paul to the Romans. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, Keep your mind, the writer is telling them, on the Lord's return. I know you're going through difficult times. I know the persecution is hot. I know you've lost your earthly belongings. I know you've been made fun of and mocked and ridiculed, but hang on. Don't give up. Keep your mind on the Lord's return. Our brief stay on this earth will soon be over, and all of our troubles are going to be swallowed up in the glory that is soon to be revealed. And the conclusion to chapter 10 is what leads us into the next chapter 11 because he's about to now talk about faith. He says, now the just shall live by faith. That's also Habakkuk chapter two. Now the just shall live by faith. What is the sum of all these things in chapter 10? The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But good news is we are not of those who draw back into perdition or sin, but we are of those who believe to the ultimate saving of our soul. So next time, we're going to be starting chapter 11, probably the chapter you as a Christian are most familiar with. But just keep in mind that chapter 10 led into it, and the writer addressing these these Jews, some who were far from Christ, some who were really considering coming to Christ, and then finally those who had come to Christ. And that includes all of us. And he says, Hang on, stay close to Jesus. He's strengthening you, He's going to help you to endure. You're going to make it to the other side of this valley. He's working a work in you. And soon and very soon, we're going to see the King. So, Amen. Great chapter, wasn't it? I love this book of Hebrews, it's so rich. And again, I want to thank you for being with us online, and thanks for tuning in and staying with us, and for your support of your church, Turning Point Church, and know that we're reaching tens of thousands of people every day throughout America on the Life Talk radio broadcast in every time zone, 30 minutes a day. And uh, so God is using you and me together, even in this time of plague, to reach people for him. We love you. We're praying for you, and we'll see you Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.